everyone and welcome to another Scots Wayhay podcast. Uh, today from the Fruit Market Gallery in Edinburgh where I'm going to be talking to writer Helen McClory. Um, we're going to be talking about her new collection of short stories, Mayhem and Death, which has just been published by 404 Inc. Um, along with debut collection, again, on, on the edges of vision. Um, but before we talk about anything else, let's say hello, Helen. Hello, Esther. And uh, thanks for coming along and doing this. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Um, so let's start at the beginning of your kind of life as a writer. How did you first decide that this was what you were going to do? Um, well, I always wrote wee stories and things as a child and just loved it. But I didn't really think of it as an option for a career. Um, and I just kept, you know, writing away and mostly writing poems when I was uh, an adolescent. Poems that nobody should ever see. <laughs> yes, we've all got those, I think. Um, but then I, I sort of decided I wanted to do a creative writing master's and to try my hand at writing and see if it was something I could make a go of. I didn't. I never thought, you know, A, I'll be published, or B, that I could make a career out of that even if I was published. But I just felt like I, I had maybe an ability and I wanted to try. So I did a master's in creative writing at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Right. Um, and I, it went really well and it was really innovative and interesting and it gave me all these kinds of exciting ideas that I hadn't come across because I did um, an undergraduate from St Andrews in creative uh, in um, English literature and classical studies right. which was a good grounding but very traditional as you yes, can imagine yes. so this was like exploding the world um, and after that I thought I haven't learned enough about how to write so I'll try and do a PhD and I was lucky enough and privileged enough that I could do a PhD in creative writing which I did at uh, University of Glasgow um, and after that I was like right well I have the stamina <laughs> <laughs> yeah I've got this far I've got this far I'm gonna just keep trying and I, uh, I tried to have the tried to get the book published that I wrote for the PhD it was an unsuccessful attempt yes. but I felt well you know at every stage you have to tell yourself I've come this far so I'll just keep writing keep going see how far I can push along um, and then I uh I finished at Glasgow, went to New York, uh, and then started writing another novel that right. would eventually be Flesh of the Peach, yes. which took me a long time to write and perhaps longer to get published. Okay. So it was actually written before my debut collection. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, um, and caused me no end of grief and... Uh, <laughs> Knocks. So I'm a good one to ask if you're feeling bad about your career as a writer. I've got oh, I've got so many stories Scars, of rejection. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a lot to unpack there. For first of all, why Sydney for doing your um, time there? I just uh, well, my mother was a ten pound palm. She moved yeah, to right. Australia uh, in the 70s, and so I'd always heard stories of how amazing Australia was. So I really wanted to go there, and I did it, and it was. I mean, it was a fantastic place, um, but so far away, yeah. I couldn't sustain life out there, yeah. and there wasn't any funding to do a PhD, which would have been very expensive. Sure. So, come back after yeah. that. Yeah. And um, the PhD at Glasgow, I think people are kind of quite interested in what that entails, because for a lot of people, it's... I suppose a bit like any kind of literary PhD, but how do you mark something that's creative in that way? Yeah, I still don't fully know, and I had my viva. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just, uh, well, with the combo of um, doing a creative piece and a selection of essays to talk mm -hmm. about your own work, I think they can judge you from that to see that you've, you've gone in with a plan and you've got your influences listed and then shown how you've kind of led up to this, then, mm -hmm. then they can kind of do it from there. For me, the essay part was the absolute hardest. It was absolute murder to, to write essays on my own stuff. Sure. But also, I really just went to my influences and did it from there. Um, it was very, very hard work yeah. for a PhD. And I had the idea that I might go into academia afterwards. Mm -hmm. I no longer have that idea, really. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I do not have that type of mind. I have a what dissuaded you from that? Um, the, I think the size of creative writing department 
jobs, I guess, like the number of jobs in Scotland being so small and yeah. so competitive. Sure. And also it's quite traditional. Yes. And I knew that I was writing and interested in stuff that is deeply weird, literary, but not from the canon necessarily, yeah. or neglected from the canon or peripheral. So I never felt like I could participate in the conversation that was being had. And I also felt a bit stupid compared with a lot of academics that I met. So that's two sides of that coin there. That's really interesting because I think um, there is this uh, belief, rightly or wrongly, that, as you say, the writing courses can be quite traditional. They're often run by people who are creative, but also academics as well, mm -hmm. almost a joint background. So therefore, they may produce similar writers coming through them. Now, I would say you're an example of that not happening, mm. but what's your feeling on that? I think that everybody who goes into these programmes is an individual, so they will get what they can from it. Um, and I don't say that tradition is bad at all. I mean, what would we have if we didn't pay attention to the works that have gone before and sure. have been so amazing? Uh, but I do think there needs to be perhaps just a strain more weirdness and a... <laughs> And experimentation, yeah, just to help people realise the fullness of what they can go for. Give them permission. Yes, absolutely. Because seeking your own permission is really hard and full of self-doubt. Yeah. So, uh, maybe things would have gone a bit smoother for me after if I'd had that a wee bit more of that. So, how do you feel now about the first novel that was actually your PhD piece? Well, I still like it as a, as in what I could do then, and I think it's always good to be generous to your past self and the limit of the abilities you had then. But it is, I was trying so hard to write in a traditional form for that PhD, yes. and it was agonising to do. Yes. And I don't know, I, th I think the work is good, but numerous publishers and agents who've seen it said it's too quiet. That's interesting. Really interesting. Mm. Um, and the viva for a, a PhD creative writing is it almost like an editorial meeting. It's almost like people sitting there going, well, I like this, but if you do a bit of that or if you take out that, I mean, how does that work? Um, with my viva, no, it was, they were, I had, I came in with my PhD thesis stuck full of all these notes about what I could defend, like, oh, this creative choice was because of this and this bit of this. And then in the end, it was like, mm, your essays need this little bit of work. And the book, yeah, we, it's that's okay. all right, yeah. Uh, well, that's okay. Yeah, so I was quite lucky in that regard. So, moving on from that, you, you put the, the original novel out to publishers and you saved a few scars from that. <laughs> um, and then you went to New York, did you say? Yes, I went to New York and uh, lived there for a year and a half. Right. Um, worked as a dog walker. Okay. And I've told many people this story, so forgive me if you've maybe heard it, but while there I was Lou Reed's dog walker. Wow. That's my one famous <laughs> encounter. That's fantastic. Yeah. What kind of dogs does Lou Reed have? He had a, a dog called Lola Bell, and there's actually a documentary about her okay. by Laurie Anderson, Lou Reed's partner. And she's kind of a Parson Russell Terrier. Oh, I forgot Laurie Anderson, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and she was very elderly when I looked after her, so she didn't really want to be walked very much. But yeah, so that was a great bit. But New York itself was so hard, yeah. and, and it was—it gave me such a respect for immigrants because they actually managed to do it. And I was an immigrant who just failed. So I thought, well, I'm not very good at this. I wrote a novel about failing to immigrate properly. Well, I think. Since you wrote Flesh of the Peach before uh, on the Angels of Vision, we'll start by talking about Flesh of the Peach. Because like, as you say, it's, it begins in New York. Yes. And it is a, a, someone who... Well, two of the kind of greatest things that could happen to you, the most traumatic things that happen to you happen, and then it's how she get then deals with that. So if you could explain a little bit about Flesh of the Peach. Yes, in Flesh of the Peach it follows uh, Sarah Brown, who uh, is living in New York, kind of on the fringes of uh, surviving. Um, she has just broken up with the married woman that she was having an affair with. Well, the married woman broke up with her yeah. in a rather traumatic way. And she's also just learned that her mother, for whom she was estranged, yes. has uh, died yeah. and left her all her money, basically. Which is a lot. Which is a lot, because she was a kind of uh, sentimental painter of uh, 
rather tedious watercolors, <laughs> whereas Sarah is trying to be an experimental artist. Yes. Um, and so instead of trying to face her grief and, and process her feelings, she goes, oh, I'll just go and move to the cabin that my mother has given me away from everybody and just try and push forward and ignore everything. And then she just proceeds to do that and travels to New Mexico where she messes up her life and other people's lives for a bit. It's, um there's flashbacks to Cornwall as well, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. So you've got this movement and these different places, very distinct places. And I was wondering, and now knowing that you spent time in New York, I might have an idea of the answer to this, but where the places kind of drove the story and to what extent? Well, New York was very central to that, uh, to driving it to, to causing the, the difficulties, because it's such a difficult place to live. It's yeah. really hard, really fast, really expensive. Um, really grueling and and New York tells itself the story of being hard and fast and the best it prides itself in it it does Um, so I wanted to see how this woman would with no real preparation would cope and that changed you know how she is and dictates her way of moving in this this horrible place it's just uh, it's not horrible New York's not horrible her like the aura around her is difficult and it makes everything that bit more difficult so then I, uh, I wanted to have New Mexico in it um, because, I tra- I, and I did this for research, I travelled to New Mexico because I had the idea of it being the place that she would go because its tagline as a state is the land of enchantment. Right, wow. That's the actual land, like, tag that they use. So I was like, and I'd heard stories about how beautiful it was and how completely different it would be to New York but different again from Cornwall so it's this New Mexico is arid and uh, starkly beautiful and varied and rich and and it has an amazingly long history too which I didn't really know before I went Um, so I made the journey that's in the book by bus I often thought it was a bit like a kind of weird take on Alice in Wonderland where she meets really odd and destructive characters when she gets there. Mm. Um, and it's interesting that you, you, you were going to travel there to kind of um, experience where it was for yourself. And do you think that's important? Absolutely. I, I would have hardly any idea of how New Mexico would be. I mean, the only thing I could do is do dry research or look at it on Google Maps, but you can't get the taste of the air. Yes. You can't, you know, smell the fried food. You can't. Um, and I think that's in the book. All those things are in the book. Absolutely, the sense of place for all three um, places that uh, are mentioned are, are so strong. I mean, I've been visiting New York briefly, and that idea of getting on a bus, even, is t- slightly terrifying. <laughs> and yeah. then kind of heading to somewhere that you don't really know in terms of New Mexico is a huge move. But then her mind is kind of so consumed with. Uh, well, guilt and anger and betrayal all sorts of things that in fact to that take probably a bus journey to someone you don't know makes perfect sense it's like running away oh yeah absolutely and and uh, running away is a great uh, sort of structure for a story yeah. I think how many stories are about running away secretly um, the relationship that breaks up in a New York, it's agonising because to me it's um, a relationship that she has invested in her real hopes and dreams but probably deep down knows it's not going to last because of the structure of it Um, and that kind of sets up her character in a way that she'll go into things invest them with real, probably too much hope and then when they crumble down it's devastating Yeah, I think... um I wanted that for for the character. It really like lets you know that she isn't um, a hard person, that she's not invulnerable because she might seem at first very aggressive and maybe yeah definitive, but she has this kind of naivety and nuance that I wanted not to allow readers to love her because they're trying not to, but to let them see her vulnerabilities. And I think that's important, especially for readers who who want, who are open to that idea. And I think that's one of the thing, functions of literature is to allow you to see other lives and to allow yourself to feel for them as well as to feel them. 
whereas you might push them away, make your judgments. Yeah. It, it sets you right in that mind. Yeah. I was at a film showing of the Prime of Miss Jean Brodie last night, and I think Jean Brodie's the classic example, or a classic example of that. You know, where you would probably, if you met her, run a mile from her, but yet <laughs> you, you, Spark manages to get real sympathy for this character who is destroying lives. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, and that's... I mean, nobody is a villain outright, no. so it's so no, worth it's doing that. In know. fact, the dedication at the beginning is for unlikable women in fiction. Yes, and, and, to, and to Miss Brodie as well. <laughs> you know. um, say a little bit more about the relationship between Sarah and her mother, because that's a really interesting one. You know, again, there's a sense of betrayal. They're estranged, as you say. Um, her mother's been very successful. She, at the moment, is not successful. Um, so what, what what ideas did you have behind that relationship? It was an interesting one to me because I'd, it's not coming from any uh, biographical sense. Um, it was just purely about the idea of creating things and how to be an artist in the world and the idea of creating yourself which is an American idea versus the reality of creating in the legacy that you you always have the idea that you have family and you have role models and you have duties that are always pressing on you so I wanted to kind of explore that idea Um, Sarah's mother I had such she came out so clearly formed as a sort of very particular kind of a person who really tries hard and is also unlikable in her own way. Right. Um, but perhaps, yeah, she's some sort of aspect of Sarah as well. They are in, intricately entwined as these things. One could not exist without the other, perhaps. Right. Um, and I was, yeah, I was just very interested to see how that would give you a character who was and layered with all these guilty feelings and difficulties not just on the personal level the, the, the um, incident that causes her to be uh, estranged from her family yes. but also in the artistic sense like she will you never be free to, to be considered on her own terms like yes she'll always be considered her mother's daughter yes exactly you said there about America being a land where individual success is really championed yeah. and in this book there are lots of people who some would say have failed and are therefore almost invisible to other people in the book that's quite a strong line for it I think. yeah absolutely and that was something I found on the journey that I took by bus to research uh, in New Mexico the Greyhound bus never stops in the affluent areas of town never stops near anywhere where you can get a hot plate of food everybody you see is a marginal almost everybody's a marginal and you really get that sense that these this is what people would think of the underclass but they're human beings and they're living their lives and you get a, in close proximity you get to feel the real feelings of their lives and the and the stories of their lives and you can't do anything but kind of respect them for working so hard and trying so hard to live um, while, while their society dictates that they have failed yeah it becomes about survival. It does. They're and surviving. You almost do anything to get to keep surviving. I think um, having been warned off against taking buses over long areas in America, I can understand that that's the what people almost expect. I was once going to get a Greyhound bus from a Los Angeles. To, I can't remember where it was now. I'm going to and was warned off by the, the person who was going to be rooting the tickets, going, no, you don't want to be getting on that bus. At least we're outside the prison for a start. <laughs> and we're like, I'm sure I'll be fine. And they, were like, they, they persuaded me eventually not to take Oh, uh, you should have just ignored them. I, I know I should have done that, absolutely. Like, but it is really a difficult experience sometimes, because there were prisoners, ex-prisoners on yeah. the bus as well. I was on. And, and yeah, why not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've got to go places too. <laughs> yeah, everyone's got to go places. But it was interesting that even people who are selling the tickets were kind of going, are you sure you want to do this? It's terrible. I mean, dismissing their own, you know, people who use the buses, their own Uh clientele. Um, So, Flesh of the Peach um, was published after uh, On the Edges of Vision. Finally got published. You said it took a long time for someone to pick it up. Yeah, four years. 
Well, so you kept in there. I kept yeah. in there, yeah, for reasons of my own, I guess, like but stubbornness. I'm, I'm interested, and I don't want to bring back any bad memories, but that's <laughs> how many rejections kind of have you got that number? How many people are you sending it out? Gosh, 30 at least. Oh, wow. Agents and small publishers, mm-hmm. lots. And do you get people saying this is good, but we don't know where it's going to we're going to put it I mean what was the reasons for rejection um, when I did get reasons and you don't always yeah sure of course um, people said there's a couple of good ones where they said you don't really know how to write and you should ask your friends like the, like people who referred me on or whatever for some tips there was some really brutal, brutal stuff there. And even after it was published, I, I sent it to a bookseller who said, this book has no themes. Wow. Um, I felt nothing reading this. Um, there's a lot... I mean, almost always I remember the more difficult ones. Of course. Um, I think it's, it's quite interesting, going back to what you said about doing the PhD, and I'm wondering if as selling of books becomes uh, more and more difficult, mm-hmm. as people are perhaps less prepared to take risks, that if you don't fit into, say, well, it's not crime fiction. I think selling literary fiction is more and more difficult. Oh, yeah. Doubt. And someone who takes chances, which you do in your writing or do, does new things, perhaps that becomes even more difficult because people just go, well, we don't know where to put this. I absolutely think that's it. And I think especially if you're writing already with things like a female protagonist and an unlikable female protagonist and the structure is difficult and, 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 you know, that makes it really hard. And the fact that it was set in America and about an English person maybe made it fall through between two stools. Yeah. As you make these little extra hybrid steps, then that adds to the difficulty, I think. Yeah. And I understand it. I mean, people are under so much pressure and I really just, I respect all the small presses who are doing that work and doing that legwork to push out what they can. But I just think if if people have learned nothing from the history of publishing or the history of writing, it's the ones which are different that do take chances that in the end people really remember. When we were talking about Alistair Gray before we started recording, imagine someone getting Lana from the desk and going, what the hell do we do with this? I'm sure somebody did. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And and probably just gave up after a couple of pages or something, but yeah, and wouldn't be able to see the brilliance of that book. Yeah. That book is one of my favourites. I think that's the case, and it always will be, that people, if you don't know what it is, then you can't talk about it, then you can't put it in your editorial meeting, you can't champion it. Um, so they just go, oh, it's a lot of effort, and they've got so much work on their plate anyway. So while Flesh of the Peach was sitting waiting to be noticed, mm-hmm. you did On the Ages of Vision, which was your first collection of short stories. Mm-hmm. So how did you go about that then? Why decide to go down the short story? Or was it a collection of things you'd already written and they were elsewhere? I had two stories to begin with, and I and they were flash fiction, really short. And I went away to a residency in Banff in Canada. Um, I had an amazing time there. Came back, wrote some rubbish that I just binned, but came back and shortly after that sat down and was like, well, I have these two stories. Why don't I write something in a theme of um, monstrous humanity? Yeah. So I wrote the, the almost all of the rest in six weeks. Wow. Apart from the final two, which I... Not final two, they're somewhere in the middle, um, on, a, on a holiday when I was in Iona. So it came out very, very fast. And then I thought, well, this is something. Might as well try and send it to some small presses. And I sent it to two, and one of them was like, what's this? Because they're Scots words and it was an American publisher. Right, okay. It. And then the other one, which was Queen's Ferry Press, was run by a woman who was born in Scotland, and she could sort of got that cross-language issue and she, she was like oh yeah we'll put that out oh, wow. and took a real risk on it um, yeah. and it was wonderful and that's how that got out very very fast completely different to Flesh of the Peach almost no resistance almost no uh, upsetting emails <laughs> and one sold to first book of the year as well I mean, which is really incredible it really is <laughs> I'm still shocked it did so well um, that, this thing of, of winning prizes does that really make a difference does it does it really help massively yeah absolutely massively i don't think my i don't think flesh of the peach would have been published mm. without winning that and uh, meeting freight's eye for better or worse yes um, i and 
for other people to take me seriously. Uh, as someone who's working in the margins on weird stuff, it, you know, winning that really made a difference. Absolutely. And did you? You probably didn't have that many expectations of it beforehand. No. How did it change your expectations of being a writer then after you know winning prizes and being published and people talking about it? Well, it didn't change it too much. I've got a very sort of realistic out, outlook that. Well, I published this one. Doesn't mean the next one's going to yeah, be published. Yeah, yeah. Just got to keep plugging away. Um, and I'm very, very happy and grateful that it won what it won. I don't expect to win another prize again. Mm-hmm. But the fact that I did is, is very encouraging in the, in the darker moments where I'm like, is this any good with, with my stuff? Uh, what I think was now... The Solitaire First Book of the Year is literally that, is it? For, it could be for anything, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. So the fact that a collection of short stories won it itself, I think, is, is very interesting. Uh, yeah, and it shows that they're they're very open to yeah. different forms, and, and I respect that a lot, and you don't see that very often. No, no. absolutely. I mean, I still think it's a form of writing that um, gets overlooked. Mm. You know, like, if it's a well-known writer, like, oh, I'm now doing short stories. I happened to do something with James Kelman's latest where people say, oh, well, he's doing that between the novels, you oh, know. Oh, that's so like, annoying. I know, absolutely, I know. I mean, I think James Kelman's best writing is his short story mm. writing. Um, but I, there, there is that, this attitude, people say, oh, I love um, I love uh, fiction. And then you say, have you read, you know, Muriel Spark's short stories? And they go, oh, no, no, I haven't. You know, you're missing out so much. Oh, I bet she, I haven't read any of her short stories too, and I know I'm missing out because well, she's so good. At... She went, came to, to notice with her first The Seraphim Zambezi won a prize, and it was the first one that she put in, mm. and that's how she kind of came to prominence was through um, short story writing. Ah, okay. Um, the, 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 again, be... set in um, Africa where she was living at the time. So, oh, well, I should absolutely check that out. Um, so, on the edges of vision. And then Flesh the Peach does get picked up. And yes. you just said there, for better or for worse, you should explain to people who don't know, it was picked up and published by Freight. And then just after it was published, pretty much, yep. Freight was no more. Yep. So now Flesh of the Peach is kind of no more as yeah, well. Yeah, and that's it, is it? Yep. Well, until another publisher makes you know a generous offer to put it out again. <laughs> Well, Which if anyone I, listening, you know, it's it's there, it's already done, it's yeah, easy. I've got the rights. It's, it's, it's easy. Yeah. No. Um, so the, the themes that are in a Flesh of the Peach, we've kind of spoken about grief and art and a desire, um, and they, they, they kind of run through a lot of your work as well. So let's move on to Mayhem and Death, which is the, the latest uh, book. Um short fiction again as you see some flash fiction very short a page length mm-hmm. is this more of a collection of things that you'd written elsewhere or again was it something that you sat down and wrote um, I'd been writing for the sort of two years between um, On the Edges of Vision and now I I uh, just been always writing flash fictions here and there, getting them, putting them out, getting them published, just enjoying that work without much pressure. And then I got the rights back to On the Edges of Vision, and uh, 404 said, "Can we put it out?" And also, do you have a collection? And I was like, "Yes," because that's always the correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> and I started just uh, pulling it together, and then typing up and writing new things um, within a very short space of time, about two months, a month something like that. Um, I hadn't finished uh, Powdered Milk, which is a long story at the end. I yeah. just kind of started it and I, I just rushed it. Deadlines are good for me. It makes me yes. do it. Um, and then was like, here, what do you think of this? I've got no idea. There you go. Um, and they liked it and they very kindly put it out with the reissue. Um, in the themes in Mayhem and Death, not themes as such, but almost, well, there's a lot of animal fables, a lot of dreams, a lot of fantasy, that kind of, was that a deliberate to, to kind of have that run through them all? Yes, and there's deliberate kind of images that repeat, like roses, Yes. and uh, straight strangers who you kind of glimpse at the side. Um, I think I was just, I just had the idea of how do you um, build a through line? Um, 
that's not totally overt. Yes. And that was what I kind of stuck upon. And it was obviously in my mind as I was writing them all within that two-year period. And that's... I think it's good to do that, to, to get your stories at the one time. So it has a feel... It's really a snapshot of yeah. the writing life and the reading life and, and all that at the time. And there's real um, mystery and often the images aren't you've got to read them a couple of times to go right oh exactly am I reading here mm. oh, yeah, it's a really good thing uh, and it happened when I started Fresh the Beach actually if I remember right I started reading it didn't really know what to expect I mean I'm going to have to start this again because I'm, you know and, uh, it's great because that's someone that's really confounding expectations and making you look at writing in a different way um, in terms of using the natural world and the animal world and using them as kind of metaphors and, and, mm. and uh, ideas. Where did, you, where did the inspiration for that come from? I think it's the catastrophe that we're all heading towards. Yes, <laughs> excellent. Um, it's more and more on my mind yes. in the last two years especially that we're reaching the tipping point where we won't come back or we'll come back different and, and really struggling yeah. and we're just speeding towards that in this 21st century of ours so I'm more aware of the animals and they keep coming there as a message that look what, we're, look what humanity is doing yeah. look how we're changing their behaviours and making them odd yes. and, and making ourselves odd yeah. as well Yeah. because uh, um, you never you know, I never got the sense of like Apocalypse with a big E, yeah. but all the stories individually are can be quite distressing because they're saying, well, you know, these little dramas in everyday life, if they play out, mayhem is a good word for it because you know it's all none of it's what you expect. Mm. Um, in writing the shorter fiction, the really short stuff, how do you approach that? Because it's I would imagine it's very difficult to get over whatever you want to in a page, a page and a half. I think some stories dictate their own length, right. mostly. It's very clear as I, I just start writing. Right. I'll just be like, right, time to write, start writing. And whatever comes out is usually either it's a bit looser and then I know it's for a longer story or it's this tight, dense stuff which I think is my mind trying to write poems, yeah. um, but with the narrative drive that's pushing it forward, because uh, I can never escape that drive for a narrative. Um, so it's not that it's hard, and actually writing the really intense short stuff is easier than writing a really long thing, mostly. Okay. Um, writing a novel is the hardest thing ever, and don't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> but you don't... Uh, do you write poetry or have you been put off by your teenage attempts? Is that still... Oh, it's an interesting question because I've just started huh? for the first time in many, many years to write poetry and I'm building a collection right now after my time in Brazil, which right. I, which I did a res residency, uh, kindly paid for by uh, the Saltire Society. Whereabouts in Brazil, where is it? It's coastal Sao Paulo. Right. Um, beautiful place. Uh, the residency is called Caixa. You can um, go and check it out. They look for international applicants all the time. Um, it's between the beach and the mountains. And in the mountains, there are waterfalls. And it's just this gorgeous, chaotic place that's kind of, yeah, it's a developing world. Everything is sort of DIY and like buildings look like they've been turned inside out sometimes. Because Sao Paulo is huge, isn't it? Sao Paulo is huge. This is nowhere near Sao Paulo. Oh, right, so it's in the state of Sao Paulo. Oh, okay. I, d I didn't know anything about it. It took me three days to work out how to pronounce the place I was in. Ah, oh, right. Which is a boisukanga, <laughs> which means big headed snake. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it was. Not what are you that big? It was called big headed snake. There's, a, there's apparently a lot of snakes, but I didn't see oh, any. Okay. I did see a tarantula though. Mm. Yeah. Um, so that was. I just started writing these poems, and I'm like, oh, what am I doing now? Normally, there's a narrative drive, but it was the idea of the place coming in because oh, when a place is always what I'm drawn to. Yeah, I think I can say that really comes across in your writing. Mm. Um, you yourself have travelled around. I mean, we've mentioned Sydney and Brazil and Banff and New York. You're originally from Skye. Well, I grew up there, but right. I was born in Paisley. I should oh, give a wee right. shout out to Paisley. Absolutely. Yeah, um, and I grew up sort of in Edinburgh, then Skye, then Edinburgh again. Um, 
so I'm so sorry. how do you think because they're all um, very different in terms of the type of places they are you know do you think that was an influence? One, was it an influence on how you saw the world? Because you saw very different places. And two, did it give you this desire to travel, which you obviously have? Yeah, definitely. Um, it made me appreciate that every place is different and has its own qualities and its own language of, of vocabulary of buildings and people and the way that people speak is so different between the highlands and the lowlands. And the divide is still very firm. Yes. You know, um, and we don't, when you're in the lowlands, it's almost like the highlands are invisible. Yes. Um, whereas if you're in the highlands, you do know that they're there. And so, yeah, it kind of made me hyper aware of that difference. And the way that I spoke was different to the way that people spoke in Edinburgh when I yeah. moved down. And I think in writers, if you want to see writers' lives, there's always a crisis moment when they're young, which makes them a writer. And I think that was my moving year to Edinburgh. Oh, that's very interesting. So you're always an outsider, perpetually. And um, this, you've been residency in Banff and then in Brazil. Is this something that you kind of want to continue? Absolutely. I really want to go back to Brazil to research more on the poems and build a collection. Right. I'm going to try and do that this year if I can. I've got to get funding. Yes. Fingers crossed. Um, and I'm working with a mentor with my poems. So in Brazil? No, uh, in uh, here in Edinburgh, um, just been kindly put in touch with someone via the Scottish Poetry Library. Yes, been very yeah. helpful. Um, in uh, Brazil, I've got a friend who's a, a poet, a Brazilian poet. So I'm going to talk with her and see about translation as well, because I love that work of translating things. Uh, I got a chance to do that on the residency. Oh, wow. And that was absolutely mind-blowing. Um, so yeah, more of that kind of thing and more input. You always need to have input all the time yes. so you've got something interesting to write about. So in terms of translating, how what was the different approach to that? Well, um, I'd never translated anything before. So I don't, I'm monolingual, unfortunately, yes. and unless you count Scots, and that's merely just understanding it. Um, Paisley in Edinburgh is quite different. That's, mm, that's different. very true, yeah. <laughs> um, so it was... A really interesting experience that was just kind of ad hoc. Um, it was raining a lot when I was in the residency. Four days straight of solid torrential rain, so you couldn't leave. Right. So I got talking to the other artists, and one of the artists and I were like decided to work on a translation and record our uh, speaking of this translation, and we split it so that part of the story was in uh, English and part was in Portuguese. Wow. It, um, it was "Take Care, I Love You," which is in. Uh, Mayhem and Death and so it was a dialogue between two languages so that the sense of isolation even grew even more than it yeah. was possible in, on the page and I was like really excited by that possibility you know how moving between languages is isolating and inviting at once Isolation is an interesting word to bring up because I think running through Mayhem and Death is this idea of being isolated being lonely yeah. at the beginning again your dedications are fantastic for the lonely Yes. Um, was, was this something that you wanted to um, explore and take on this idea that, you know, the, the book also, in a bigger sense, is about how we're maybe all heading down to apocalypse, increasingly lonely in, that, in, in a world that's like that? And that's one aspect of it, yeah, the environmental loneliness that yeah. we are creating. But it's also in the digital age the loneliness that exists between people and the function of literature to bridge that loneliness if it can yes. even if it's only in the slightest of ways to say I am lonely too or yeah. you know I understand that you are lonely yeah. very slight little threads of connection that you can try and do with literature and, and that have been the best of literature I've read a little moment of like oh that's like me I'm not alone I'm not the, uh, a unique you know someone was asking uh, recently um, I was talking about literary fiction he said well what do you mean literary fiction and I, can, I really have to think about that and I thought it's, it's stuff that exactly that it makes you feel uh, empathy on the page of it yeah I felt that way I have um, been there too I've hopped like that I, you know all of those things and I think that's what it does I think that's a great gift of literary fiction that other forms of art cannot give necessarily or they only give it in a performative sense briefly in the air like music 
yeah. you can kind of get that but then there's another it's a deeper form and a quieter form that you get from literary yeah. fiction and it can be quite a devastating form when, oh, you, yeah. when you read it because it makes you perhaps you know I think when I was reviewing your book I was saying it asks questions of you that you might not like the answers when you answer them I think that's what great, really good writing can do um, I was talking to someone who had read uh, James Kelman's Dirt Road recently and said they found themselves crying reading the book and they weren't quite sure why. I was thinking, yeah. that's exactly it, you know, when it, when it really gets you at that. Oh, yeah, The Remains of the Day is a yeah. good example of that too. You're just going along and then suddenly the waterworks and you just, you've reached a threshold and you've crossed over that and the literature has been slowly working on you to make you understand this mind yeah. or this situation. And, and you're right, a line in a song can make you choke up or make you, but the full sobbing kind of has to be something a bit more substantial, I think. Yeah. Um, so what, oh, what I wanted to ask you about then was Jeff Goldblum. Ah, yes. So for those who don't know, explain about your Jeff Goldblum connection. Well, I've uh, written a pamphlet called Goldblum Variations. Yes title came from Twitter because I didn't think of that but it was written to a prompt for a podcast they just said uh, one of my friends was coming on the podcast with me Gillian Best she's an excellent author as well Um, and she said well Jeff Goldblum's your prompt and that was a very slight prompt and from there I just started doing these like absurd micro fictions about him and uh, things that he could have been doing and um, a little bit after um, Mayhem and Death was coming together I said to uh, 404 I've got an idea for a little pamphlet and they were like oh right okay uh, I went away in two days I wrote this little collection of uh, yeah absurd strange things about Jeff uh, not really about Jeff Goldblum yes, really. absolutely. Uh, but the idea of celebrity and the idea of uh, past lives and points of connection and strangeness it kind of built from there and um I can probably say now, because I've signed the contract, it's going to be a mini book that's going to be for sale in bookshops now. So that's quite exciting. And uh, Jeff is aware? I think he might be. I think he might be. I think um, Heather and Laura said that they believe he is aware. Yeah. Um, I The thing I meant to ask you before we leave Mayhem and Death was mm. about powdered milk. So that's the, the story at the end, and it's a longer story, almost in a novella length. Um, it's a horror story, really. And tell us a little bit about that, because it feels like it feels like it could have been longer, or was it, is it, is it as you said, the length that these are always the length that they're going to be? These are always the length that they're going to yeah, be. Yeah. Um, I started with no plan for that one. Yeah. Uh, it actually ties in with the very first story of Mayhem and Death, yeah. Souterrine, um, which you can kind of pick up as you get to the end, I think. Um, so I started just writing the story, and it suddenly was like grew from the idea of a flash fiction outwards and it's this uh, how to approach it it's the story of people trapped basically at the bottom of the sea um, and they're on a research base and it's mostly filtered through the eyes of a character called Maddie who has taken on the role of the psychologist for the group although it's maybe not wise that she's in that role (laughs) and the kind of attempt of very highly competent people to survive a terrible disaster that is happening to them that they don't fully understand all of the pieces of Um, yeah and and to kind of build that sense of claustrophobia around that even as you can see people are being they're making mostly the right choices at the start I mean again it's a sense of isolation but Isolation when actually you're forced together with other people. Yeah. So this idea that even though I've got all these people around me, I've never felt so alone. Yes, yeah, and I think that's the worst kind, possibly. And, uh, yeah, because there's no escape well, that's, that's there's, no, there's no getting on the bus yeah, and saying, well, at least I can go somewhere else yeah, and run so away. It, no exit, you no know, exit. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's a terrific story. Uh, the other one I did want to mention, and I've totally forgotten the name, it's my favourite of the book, but it's the one with the man in the mirror. Oh, it's A Voice Spoke to Me at Night. A Voice Spoke to Me at Night. Um, it's a beautiful story. Um, it's a re- it's about relationship with a stranger over not just distance, but time as well. Um, can you explain a little bit about That was another one where I went, I'm going to have to go back and read this from the start again. 
just to make sure I have it clear in my head what I think about it. Yeah, it's the story of a sort of lonely character who's ungendered, who lives a very in a modern world, yes. very modern and contemporary, and they. Um, they have a job that they kind of don't love. They just sort of want to stay under the radar. Uh, they're a little bit afraid of everyday existence and they don't have a lot of strength in themselves, but they're telling themselves that they are coping. Yes. And then one day they kind of hear this voice, a uh, voice that speaks to them at night, and they think it's their phone, which they regularly just take to bed with them. And it's not their phone. It's a man who is in the mirror, on the other side of the mirror, in the... Uh, the medieval era yeah. and he has he's trying to communicate he is the only survivor in a plague ridden town and he's sort of educated he's speaking to this person in the language of his time Yes. and so they can't understand him the modern person can't understand him until afterwards or records him and then understands him and it's about that gulf of understanding between people and that attempt that we continually have and I think we always will have as people to, to communicate and yeah. offer succour to each other yeah and yeah there's always a sense of something between us you know no matter who it is yeah. you know whether it's friends family strangers whatever there's always that kind of um, potential for misunderstanding because there's that barrier between us, whatever that would be. It's just it's so beautifully done oh. with the way that these two communicate with each other and uh, uh, and um, are kind of heartbreaking at the same time without wanting to give any more away. Mm. What are you... Can you tell us what you're doing next then, apart from the poetry, or is that the next thing? Um, poetry, uh, and I'm also working on a novel... Right. Um, which is going to be in a three-part structure. Hopefully, it's, I've sent a bit of it to my agent. So right. We'll see what she says. <laughs> then I can talk more about it. But it's a three-part structure. Uh, each part is novella length, to, and it's the same. It's a group of three friends who are telling the same story right, from different okay. angles. Right. Um, and it's about love and relationships, but also a fake diary from the 18th century and possible possession by a ghost. Fantastic. So we'll see. I mean, I, I like to start lots of different projects yeah. and throw stuff around, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And see, some of them will take off, and some of them you go, well, no, that's not working. Put yeah, aside. put it aside. Maybe cannibalise it later for parts. Um, I'd also like to talk a little bit about your influences, because your writing seems um, so individual. I mean, I think now... If someone was to show me a story of your work, I would say that's Bob Bastella McCrory's work. Um, so what were your influences on your writing, both literary and other influences as well? I have so many. I think every book I've ever read is fed into it, into the channel. I think everybody says that, though. Um, Virginia Woolf is a big influence when I was younger. Uh, Jean Rhys. Right. Um, Muriel Spark as well, obviously. Um, that kind of bleakness that I like from the two of them. Yeah. Uh, Tony Morrison in terms of here's what really good kind of contemporary fiction can do. Um, I like Leonora Carrington's weirdness. Right. Um, she's just getting her, her big push now. Um, yeah, I like surrealist works, anything that does something a bit strange. All the stories that I've read online, uh, little bits of poetry here and there that filter in and I just kind of process them. And then there's film, which is the biggest yeah. influence possibly, and visual art. Right. Um, I'm always looking at paintings and kind of res I respond to a lot of creative works in, in my stuff yeah. um, and reference them all the time, which is probably slightly annoying. In <laughs> <laughs> um, the idea that you have to be intertextual, so I'm like, here, look, you have to go now, look, look up that picture if you haven't seen it, um, or go and watch that movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love... Uh, yeah, films are, are in Mayhem and Death I reference a few the stories are directly telling yes. films um, like The Runaway Bride is yeah. an influence even though I hated that film I, I can I can use stuff that I don't like particularly yeah of course as, well. as yeah. you say everything kind of has some kind of influence even if it's going oh, I really disagree with that yeah here's my thesis about why that's rubbish but you know or yeah a love letter um, and also I mean it's interesting I think the way that we now read because it's not just a book 
between the pages are a collection of poetry. It is stories online or um, some of Twitter thread even. Or, um, so you find that as influential, you know, these little bits Absolutely. and pieces. Absolutely. Yeah, the idea that our, write, our reading is fragmented. Yeah. And perhaps that plays into why I always write flash fiction, which is a kind of fragment form, perhaps, in some ways. And now the poetry, we are shattered in yeah. the modern era. And that's okay if you can find ways to be interconnected in your shatteredness. And without that, then you don't realise your humanity. So it's how do you engage with the world without being overwhelmed? Because it's yeah. very easy to oh, become gosh, overwhelmed. Oh, yeah, yeah. But that's yeah, what I'm trying to do too. It's very difficult to have any kind of filter that actually works. You know, eventually you've got to decide, you know, I can't watch that nine series box set of whatever. Um, Absolutely. I'm just going to have to let that go. Yes, exactly. And you have to deal with who you are <laughs> not having watched it. Well, talking about different ways of, of writing and doing things, you also, I'm interested in the idea of the unsung, unsung letter. Yes. So what's, explain a little bit about that. Well, having spent a, a long time in fruitless obscurity, uh, I have a great deal of sympathy and empathy for writers who, having had their book published and writing really good things, yes. have then had zero regard. Yeah. And I want to help them, especially if they are alive, yes. which I think is crucially, they get the most neglect. Yeah. Um, so I've been asking writers and and fiction fans of different sorts to write an essay about a book that they love by a writer who's alive yeah. so that people can then go and get that book and realise this beautiful thing is out there yeah. uh, I'm taking a slight hiatus on it at the moment because it's quite hard to find people to write for it Yes. Um, because I'm asking them to do it for nothing because I'm doing it for nothing, yeah. it's a labour of love you know. Um, but I really I feel so strongly about it uh, to let writers know that somebody loved their book and I've had feedback from writers who've had people write on them saying you know I cried on the train yeah and I just thought that's so that's the mission there absolutely I mean um, one of the things about the website is to support writers that otherwise wouldn't get um, a voice elsewhere because the big names still are the ones that go to the front of the queue yes especially in a small country like Scotland it's very hard to get any kind of traction um, so who would you here's a, a question for you who would you recommend at the moment if you had an unsung letter to write tomorrow and say well I've read this writer and it's really put you on the spot I do uh, has, it has put me on the spot I'm having a wee think um, gosh who would I put I've been reading a lot of really old dead white men right <laughs> recently so it's really hard um, but I have been reading uh, I think it's doing quite well in America Yes. but Calling a Wolf a Wolf by Kavi Akbar is a book of poems he's alive very much so and it's about poems about addiction and desire which is, I'm very interested in and the the number of poems in here where I've just wanted to take a picture and just like send it to all my friends and be like look at this poem it's amazing it's just astounding and I think that's the mark of an unsung book definitely absolutely you want to share it with her immediately yeah Um, well Helen I think that's the perfect place to end but thanks so much for talking to us oh thank you for uh, having a chat and good questions there and uh, we'll be back uh, very soon with someone completely different cheers (laughs) 